You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We've reached uh, the end of the book of Nehemiah. We're going to close out the book of Nehemiah and we'll launch into a new series uh, to begin the Advent season um, next Sunday. So if you have Bibles, you can make your way to the last chapter of Nehemiah, uh, which is Nehemiah chapter 13. And if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles that you'll find under your seats there, uh, page 408 is where you will find um, today's text. The, uh, the noble laureate named William Faulkner once uh, mused about the difference between a monument and a footprint. He was writing about the difference between a monument and a footprint, and he said this, A monument only says, at least I got this far. A footprint says, this is where I was when I moved again. The life of faith is not marked by monuments, but by footprints. And maybe that's obvious to you. But in so many ways, it's the opposite of what we want or what we expect. We become a Christian, and we expect in that moment to, to build a monument. Now I'm a Christian, at least, I've, at least I've come this far. But then the rest of our lives expose how becoming a Christian is so much more like the starting gate than it is like the finish line. Or we graduate school, or we get a job, or we get married for some of us, or have kids, or we retire And we want to make each of these things into monuments. You know, at least now I'm a graduate, an employee, a husband or wife, a parent, a retiree. At least I've come this far. And instead we find that in each and every one of these moments, once those changes take place, these things are really footprints. These are opportunities. These are callings. Not to say at least we've come that far, but to move again. After the dedication of the walls... Nehemiah chapter 13 uh, jumps ahead some unspecified period of time. Uh, Nehemiah was initially in Jerusalem for 12 years. He then, as we'll read here today, goes back to Persia, probably for three or four years. And then he returns to Jerusalem. And upon his return, what he finds are not new problems, but the same exact ones that he had to address when he was there the first time. Now, Nehemiah is most known for building the walls of Jerusalem. If you know anything about this character in the Bible, if you know anything about this book of the Bible, that's probably what you know. But in this last chapter of this book, this, the last words that we have on record from Nehemiah in his own memoirs, do you know what you won't read about? A wall. A wall. Important as they are, the walls of Jerusalem were not a monument. They were a footprint. They created and they secured a place for the people of God to pursue and to live as the people of God. And when that wall was completed, as we've been seeing these last couple weeks, it immediately exposed how much more work there was to do in the hearts of the people. And isn't that the infinitely harder work than building a wall? So I'll be honest, if I'm Nehemiah and I put in the 12 years that he put in, Uh, in the face of the opposition that that he faces, and then after a couple years away, came back to find what he finds here in chapter 13, I'm probably done. Like, 
that's it. I tried. Clearly it didn't work. I quit. And then I would close out my memoirs writing about the wall. Like, at least we got that wall done, right? That was great, wasn't it? We got the wall done, 52 days. We knocked it out. We mobilized the people. That was awesome. Nehemiah instead moves again. He goes to work again. One of the key phrases of the Protestant Reformation, semper reformanda, Latin phrase, semper reformanda, always reforming. The life of faith is marked by constant reform. This side of heaven, you and I are never arriving, but always pursuing. We are never finished, but we are always in process. And that reform happens in us, and that reform happens through us. And so as we conclude the book of Nehemiah this morning, let's together consider this need for constant reform. The constant reform, the need to move again. And I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Verse 10, I also found that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the, the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Verse 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when, I, when they sold food, teary, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? 
Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. It's a great line of the Bible. If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Uh, From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God and our merciful Father, you've given us this rich and precious jewel of your word. Guide us now by your spirit that it might be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ, and to increase in us all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. With the brief moments that we have this morning, two things for us to consider in light of Nehemiah 13 reform in us and reform through us. In us and through us. So first, reform in us. When you read the Bible, who do you identify with? Who do you identify with? In passages like this one where there's a hero figure like Nehemiah, do we not tend to first identify ourselves with that person, with that hero or heroine? We, we imagine ourselves to be the righteous one, championing what is good in the world. We imagine other people around us to be the lazy and the immoral and the heart of heart. There's a place to follow Nehemiah's example and to be an agent of reform like him. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But it would actually be a far better instinct and far more accurate to first identify not with Nehemiah but with the people of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Like them, we are constantly in need of reform. As we read throughout this chapter, the people of Jerusalem have returned to their same 
pet sins. They're besetting sins. So the first three verses, they've again relaxed the standards on their call to be a holy and set-apart people. Verses four through nine, Eliashib has turned a temple chamber, which is a small warehouse meant to store items for ceremonial offerings. Uh, He's turned that into a lounge for Tobiah. Jerusalem has a history of its leaders being among the most corrupt and faithless of the people. And that's again the case with Elijah. He shows up a couple times in this chapter. You heard that name a couple times. As the high priest, he's the primary mediator between God and the people. But he's connected by marriage to both Tobiah and Sanballat, these two main enemies and opponents of the people that we read about throughout this book. And so rather than leading the people in holiness, Eliashib is compromising and he's giving sacred space in the temple to appease one of those enemies. Verses 10 through 14, the people have again neglected giving tithes and offerings to support the ministry and the service of the temple. So you remember back a couple weeks ago, if you were here with us, the end of Nehemiah chapter 10, the people are making this covenant with God and the climactic moment at the very end of that, they shout, we will not neglect the house of our God. And then they do exactly that. So they need to be called to faithfulness and to fulfill those commitments again. Verses 15 through 22, they're violating the Sabbath again. They're working on this day set apart for worship and rest. And again, seeking loopholes by buying goods that they didn't make, but that other nations made for them. These are the same things that Nehemiah has addressed before. These these are also part of that same covenant from Nehemiah chapter 10. Then verses 23 through 29, intermarriage, again. Now this issue, as we've talked about more in depth in past weeks, is not about race, but about religion. It's about not binding your hearts and your lives with people who don't worship the one true God. Ezra, if we read the book of Ezra, if we went back a few years before Nehemiah, Ezra dealt with this same problem. Nehemiah dealt with it during his first 12 years there in Jerusalem. Now here it is again. Uh, If you ever sit down and have some extended time to read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah together in one sitting, they address intermarriage so much in those two books, you'll find yourself going, like, seriously? Didn't we just talk about that? Are we back there again? How sinful, how stubborn can these people possibly be? And the answer is, at least as sinful and stubborn as I am. And we are. See, if we first identify with Nehemiah, we will miss how the story of these people is the story of our own lives. How often do you and I find ourselves back in the same kinds of sin? Or to put it to you another way, when we take time in our worship services for confession, what do you find yourself confessing week after week after week? Is it anger, materialism, lust, a lack of love for a particular person or a particular group of people? Maybe it's not being attentive to God? And if you find yourself not ever being able to think of something during those times, then we can help you fill the blank in there. It's probably pride. It's it's probably self-righteousness. It's probably thinking too highly of yourself, right? And there's something so immensely discouraging about this, is there not? Proverbs, the book of Proverbs depicts this as a dog returning to its vomit, which is a really stark picture. We sin... It doesn't satisfy, so we throw it up 
but then rather than stay away from it, we go to the vomit and we eat that, thinking that maybe this time around that'll satisfy. It's disgusting. It's insane. We know better, and yet, here we are again. It's right to be discouraged about that. If, if sin is an offense against God, which it is, as the corruption of God's good design, as the cause for the brokenness in our lives and the cause of the wounds with which we wound one another, the ongoing existence of sin in our lives, that should discourage us. Because discouragement is an infinitely better response than apathy or numbness or a hardness of heart. But when we see our persistent recurring patterns of sin rear their head again, when we are again moved to repentance and the pursuit of reform, what I would say to you this morning is that you should not only be discouraged, but be encouraged. Why do I say that? Because all of a Christian's life is a life of repentance. Because all of a Christian life is marked by reform. All of it. Beginning to end, all of it. And your awareness of that sin again, your discouragement again, your being moved to repentance and confession again, that is evidence of God's continued work in you. When you're broken over that same exact sin again, you become, think about this, you become living proof that God is a God who will not give up on his people. Thanks be to God, he refuses to leave you and I where we are today. Like Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem, finding the people immersed in their same old besetting sins, God will respond not with resignation, but reform. Though he has every reason to say, God has every reason to say, that's it, I quit, I'm done with these people. He instead rolls up his sleeves and he says, I love you, okay, let's get to work. Can you imagine, can you imagine the tragedy of a life where God said to you or to me in our present condition, at least he got that far, at least she made it that far, the hopelessness of that. How tragic it would be if today is as good as it gets. But the ongoing reforming work of God in us, displayed here by Nehemiah's response when he returns to Jerusalem, means that God is not yet finished, that we are not yet finished, that his work of reform presses on. And so what I would plead with you this morning is to, to not make that recurring sin pattern in your life. Don't make that sin a monument. Some people make sin a monument in a really brazen, arrogant way. Like they would say something like, I don't really care what God says. This is what I'm doing. I'm doing it my way. But many of us, others of us, make sin a monument in a more subtle way, in a more despairing, resigned kind of way. Like, well, I guess that's as good as I can do. I guess that's, that's as far as I'll get. I guess I'll just accept and embrace that this is part of my life. Don't do that. Don't. By the power of the Holy Spirit, because of God's own commitment to bring to completion the work that he begins, today is not, in your life, a monument. Today is a footprint. And as discouraged as you might be in those low moments where you find yourself in that same recurring sin pattern again, have every confidence in those moments that you will one day look back and you will say, not, at least I got that far, but that's where I was when God moved again. Second, 
Let's talk about reform through us. That's reform in us. Let's talk about reform through us. Incredibly, as God is doing this ongoing work of reform in us, and long before he's finished, he also calls us to bring about his reform in the lives of others and in the world. So though we should first identify with the people of Jerusalem here, this is where we can, with integrity, also identify some with Nehemiah and actually follow his example. Nehemiah's issues that he faced, corrupted worship, the breaking of the Sabbath, neglecting the house of God, those are the things he, he's called into. What might our list look like today? Just to name a few, potentially. Fatherlessness, racial reconciliation, human trafficking, poverty and homelessness, as you heard Keith talk about before. Sanctity of life, immigration reform, care for refugees. We, we don't have time to make a full list or even to get into any one of those in particular this morning. In January, as we've done for the last number of years, we'll again focus on a few different mercy and justice issues that are happening in our world at present. But the reason that we do that each January and the reason that we care about those things, not just for a month of the year, but all year long, is because we are, human beings are, the primary means through which God does his reforming work in the world. We who are being reformed, even in that same moment, become agents of God's reformation. Or to put it in short, we are reforming reformers. Reforming reformers. So what then do we learn from Nehemiah's example in chapter 13? We learn that in the work of reform, there's a place for anger. Nehemiah doesn't just tell Tobiah to take his furniture out of the temple. He chucks it. He channels his inner Bobby Knight, and he chucks that furniture right out the door. We can, we can quickly become sinful in our anger, and we do. But there is a need for a righteous form of it. Nehemiah here, and maybe you picked up on this as we read it, he actually foreshadows a day many years later when Jesus himself would also throw some furniture around in the courts of the temple. We learn from Nehemiah too, there's a place for confrontation and a need for confrontation. Verse 11, I confronted. Verse 17, I confronted. Verse 25, I confronted. Reform almost never just magically happens. Almost always it comes through confrontation. And often, it's far less drastic and violent than maybe Nehemiah's looked, but only externally. Only externally. Internally, it's always violent. Have you ever tried to confront someone about a blind spot in their life or about the need that you see that they might have to grow? Like, you better brace yourself for that conversation. Because whatever it looks like externally, Internally, confrontation is the equivalent of throwing furniture around and pulling hair out and chasing people away. Lastly, though there is an active role for us to play, we learn from the example of Nehemiah that we are to leave ultimate justice and ultimate judgment to the hands of God. Remember, oh my God, this refrain of chapter 13, four times it shows up here in this, in this chapter, this is Nehemiah's continual recognition that the verdict belongs to God. The verdict belongs to God. Three of his four pleas are for God to remember him. Nehemiah says, remember me. Remember me in favor. Remember me for good. But one of those four is for God to remember his enemies 
and their corruptions and the way that they've damaged the, the, the worship and the life of the people there in Jerusalem. It's another way of Nehemiah saying, bring your justice, bring your judgment, God. Write what is wrong in the world. And we talked about this a lot more when we were back in chapter five. It's the same prayer that you and I are meant to pray. We want God, we need God to do something about the evil and the injustice that persists in the world. So we cry out to God, remember, remember that this is happening. And here's why both of these are so important. That God remembers us will stir us to action. His, he is reforming us. In response, we labor to see his reform through us. When we ask God to remember us and our efforts, it keeps us from underfunctioning in this incredibly important role that he has given us to play. Horribly imperfect and insufficient as our efforts will no doubt be, especially when you look at some of those massive issues of, of mercy and justice that exist in our world. Horribly imperfect and insufficient as our efforts will be, we still step into action and we ask God to use those efforts. We move again. We move again. At the same time, when we ask God to remember the evils that persist and to bring his justice, that keeps us from over-functioning. Keeps us from over-functioning. How so? Well, from not taking judgment into our own hands or from burning out when we feel the futility of our own efforts. Because God remembers, you and I can labor for reform, but we can do that trusting that God will be the one to put right the world. Not us, ultimately, but God. And we should never ask God to remember flippantly. Think about that. Lest we forget, we are far more like the people of Jerusalem than we are like Nehemiah. And so apart from God's mercy, we would actually never want God to remember us in our actions. We would want to kind of like just tiptoe out of the way and hope that he forgot us. But his remembering is amazing in light of his mercy. It's amazing. It's miserable. It's judgment apart from that. And so all of this builds to the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah. And far from building a wall, something that's not even mentioned here, Nehemiah's life work, his life's work, is contained in these three summary words in verses 30 and 31. Cleansing, establishing, providing. Cleansing, establishing, providing. Our world and our own lives desperately need these types of reform. And so, far beyond his worthy example to follow, the most important thing, and if you think of nothing else in the book of Nehemiah, this entire series, hear this. The most important thing about Nehemiah's life is that it points forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We need cleansing. And it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin, the apostle writes in 1 John 1. Or as the author of Hebrews says, let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How incredible is that? Why? Because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies have been washed with pure water. We need to be established. And Jesus, in 1 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul writes, establishes our hearts blameless before our God and Father. Or in 1 Peter 5, God himself will restore, confirm, and strengthen, and what? establish you. And we need 
the provision of a sacrifice to take away our sins. As, as it was foreshadowed even before Nehemiah in the book of Genesis, it is God himself who will provide the sacrifice. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice. As the Apostle Paul then can write in Philippians 4, my God will supply, he will provide for all of your needs according to what? According to his glorious riches in Jesus Christ. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is the ultimate reformer. Nehemiah is a faithful governor, a great character in scripture, a great example to follow. Jesus is the cosmic king who will make right the world. And so we who are prone to wander and prone to return to our own vomit, we have every confidence that he will continue his reforming work in us. And we who are called to see his reforming work through us can labor with all of our might. And while insufficient and imperfect as our labors will be, we can still cry out for God to remember us and our efforts because truly in Jesus Christ, he will. He will. So as we begin this Advent season next week, anticipating the arrival of Jesus, let us also anticipate, let us long for the day when reform will no longer be needed. There will come a day, church. There will come a day when God's ongoing work of reform is ended. When all of this work in us and through us is brought to its completion and its consummation. Until that day, until that day, however dark this day might seem in your life, however dark this day might seem in the world. Know that because of Jesus, this day is not a monument, but a footprint. And that you and I will not have to look back on this day many years from now and say, well, at least we made it that far. But by the grace of God, we will look back and instead say, that is where we were when we moved again. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, our God, you do this reforming work in us and through us all by the finished work of Jesus. And we again confess our need, Jesus, for that reforming work in us and that need for your reforming work in the world. We ask that now how we live in response to what you have done would become increasingly a faithful and worthwhile response. And that even now as we come to this table, we would come dependent on your grace again, dependent on your renewal, dependent on your reform again confident that because of Jesus, you will meet us with exactly that. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.